Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. This is Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Channel Journeys and welcome to summertime, at least for our Northern Hemisphere listeners. I love summertime. I love the long days that the sun is up early, which is great for my weekend bike ride. Sun goes down late, which is pretty good for barbecuing. And uh, I just love it all, all together. So, and I am super excited about today's podcast. I just met my new friend in the channel, and she is one of those people who really just goes out and grabs new opportunities and never gives up. She has an amazing channel journey of building and selling her own company, not once, but actually three times. I'm talking about Linda Rose, and she is the owner of Rose Biz and the author of Get Acquired for Millions. Linda learned a lot about selling companies on her own, doing it three times, and is now giving back to the channel by sharing that knowledge with IT solution providers who are ready to sell their companies. And there are a lot of them out there. This is great content for business owners, but also for us channel managers who want to help Linda our Rose, partners hey, build up their hello, valuations. Welcome to the Channel Journeys Podcast. How are you doing? For that as well. I'm doing Linda great, Rob. Good amazing to see woman. you today. Are you Actually, ready? I don't see you Let's today. Go. I get to hear you today. So it's fabulous. Yeah. Well, I wish I could see you, but at least we get a chance to talk. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation, Linda. We just met recently. And of course, we have a lot of mutual connections, as we always find out on LinkedIn. Yes. The channel's not that big, but I'm so glad wow. that we did connect. You and I have a lot in common with, with things we like to do, passion for the channel and, and passions for sailing and biking and hiking and all those good things. Absolutely. Fun stuff. And I feel absolutely privileged to be on this because I've looked at your people that you've interviewed in the past. I'm like, wow, Jay and Tiffany Bova and a few other people. I'm like, wow, okay, I'm in with the I'm in with the in crowd now. <laughs> <laughs> you are adding to the list of top talent on the show. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And where do we find you today, Linda? Today, I am in Oregon. So I kind of move around the West Coast a little bit. I have a few few homes here. I call the Pacific my backyard because sometimes I live in San Diego. Sometimes I live up here in Oregon along the Columbia River and sometimes I live in Hawaii. Hawaii is off limits right now. So I'm kind of kind of going back and forth between San Diego and Oregon. And I am looking out at the Columbia River and a snow-capped Mount Adams. So it's a gorgeous wow. day here. But yeah, that's my view today. That's awesome. So you've got quite a channel partner success story. You've built and sold multiple companies. Now you've written a book, Get Acquired for Millions. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I just finished recording the book for Audible. And so oh. that's going to actually be coming out in the next week or so. So you would think it would be easy to read your own book, but it is actually quite an effort. And so I spent a week in the studio. I uh, had an awesome team that helped me put out and put together an awesome recording. So I'm super excited about getting that out. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, I love listening to audiobooks. So that's that's fantastic. How many were a lot of retakes? Because that, that would be hard. You know, yes, it, it was. It was really a truly an intense week in the studio, but I had an excellent team. And then I actually came back for a second little retake on a few items, which maybe took about an hour or so. 
And then, you know, it's really hard to read your own biography. So they had an excellent person read my biography and my intro. So I'm super stoked at the results. And I think we're going to have, if, if you're okay with it, Rob, we can actually do an introductory chapter, a link to an introductory chapter for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Let's definitely do that. We can have that as a, a show giveaway at the end of the show for sure. Perfect. So it's a really interesting story on why you wrote the book in the first place. And it actually involves one of my podcast guests. Would you like to share that with our listeners? Which, oh, so Jay, right? Yes. Yes. So- yes. Just as a brief background, I spent 25 years in Microsoft Channel, and I created two partner organizations during that time frame. I also started a staffing firm during that time frame as well, but really two channel partner organizations. One of them was the traditional ERP CRM bar where we went out, sold a number of different accounting systems, mostly around the dynamic solutions both CRM and ERP, and then did that for a number of years. And that kind of morphed in then to a cloud business where we took those applications and hosted them initially in our private data center. And then we moved that some of those clients to Azure as well. When I started in 2000, 99, 2000 timeframe, Azure and AWS didn't exist. So we started in a private data center and really were the bulk of our clients still were when I sold the company. But Over the years, I ended up selling all three of my companies, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes during that process as well. And in April of 2017, which is when I sold the last company, I had the opportunity to basically leave 45 days after I sold the company. But I had some serious handcuffs on me in the sense that really couldn't start another partner organization. I couldn't really sit on the boards of too many partner organizations. So it was very, you know, the non-compete was pretty intense partially Mm -hmm. due to just my length in the channel and the number of people that knew me. So I decided I really didn't want to be retired just yet. I took like seven weeks and I started hiking the Pacific Crest Trail because that was just something that was on my bucket list. And it was the perfect time of year to do it. And being in Oregon, part of the trail goes, goes through Oregon and Washington. And I thought, wow, what a perfect opportunity. But it also gave me the opportunity, especially when you're hiking 10, 12 hours a day, 25 miles a day, think about what it is that you want to do in your life. And I had the good fortune of actually finding another guy on the trail. I mean, I started the trail out on my own. My husband dropped me off in the middle of the wilderness and said, okay, we'll see you in six weeks. (laughs) But we kept tabs on each other, you know, through the satellite phone and all the good stuff. But uh, somewhere in Oregon, in a burnt out section where there had just been a forest fire that had gone through there a couple of years earlier, I was sitting on a log and having a snack. And this guy comes up from behind me, like almost creeped me out a little bit because I didn't hear him coming. Anyway, we turned out to be great hiking buddies together. And it turned out he was from the Czech Republic and was also in IT. And so he could totally relate what I had just been through. He totally understood. I could talk to him about my career. And I knew it wasn't boring him to death because he was going through the same thing himself. And by the time I got through with the trip, we decided I was going to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I got off the trail, I started looking at material. And this is when our favorite mutual friend, Jay McBain, popped up, who is a forester analyst, had just written an article, I think it was like October of 2017, where he had a quote in there where he said that 40% of the channel would age out by 2024. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that is so true. Because we're, we just all started in that late 80s, early 90s timeframe, 
whether mm-hmm. it was in the Microsoft channel or the Citrix channel or, you know, you name it, there was a number of different channels and it's just starting then. And we're all finding ourselves in that, you know, mid fifties, early, mid, late fifties. I know some of my, my colleagues are in the early sixties already have been in it longer than I had. And they're all looking to retire, right? They're all yeah. looking to actually make an exit. And the economy up to this point was just going gangbusters. And so you saw a lot of mergers and acquisitions happening. And I thought, wow, what a perfect opportunity to take everything I learned. And then I ended up talking to a whole bunch of people after I sold to get additional um, it, you know, thoughts and feelings about people after they sold, how did they feel about the transaction? What would they have done differently? And I took all that information, including interviewing a bunch of buyers, and I put it into the book because I figured that would be the most perfect resource. And the best, I think it's like give back that I could give to the partner community because I kind of did want to do that. I want to just take all my knowledge that I'd accumulated over all those years, not only running an organization, but then selling it as well. And that's right. really what's in the book. And I have a fictional character. His name is Robert. And Robert is sort of the amalgamation of all the people that I interviewed because I got so many different stories for so many people that went well beyond the stories that I had to tell. And Robert is kind of that fictional character that pops up throughout the book as I explain certain concepts. But it's real life stuff that we've all been through as partners. And so it's just, it's very niche. Unless you're a channel partner, you probably don't want to read the book. But the channel partners that have read the book, I've just gotten some really good feedback. So I'm I'm pretty happy how it turned out. But then, of course, that wasn't enough. I figured, you know what? I need to write a program because we were in IT, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wrote a program to go with the book that will actually tell you what the true value of your company is. Because, you know, if you're a homeowner today, Rob, you can go out onto Zillow any day and know exactly what the value of your home is. And the same thing with your car, right? But as a company business owner, IT business owner, especially if you're under like $25 million in revenue, which is the majority of IT business owners, Nobody really could tell you what the value of your company is. Even if you went and did a formal IT or formal valuation, not a ton of people know how to do true IT valuations and are able to track the metrics on comparables of other people that have sold in this industry. So I was tracking those metrics anyway. And as I went out and talked to different brokers and people that sold, I was getting all the gory details on what their reoccurring revenue was and what their gross profit margin was and what their net income was. And then they all, most of them, because they knew I sold too, and I was able to share with them what I sold for, they would give me what they they sold for. So I was able to take all that valuable data and put it in the book and then also put it in this tool. So the value maximizer assessment is an assessment that goes along with the book, which, hey, Rob, why don't we just give that as a link too, so people can take their assessment and find out what their company's worth. And um, at least it gives you an idea of what you know you can expect if you were to sell your company today, or if you're preparing to sell sometime down the road. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, Jay talking about all these people that are going to be selling their businesses, it's like the baby boomer sell-off. Who's then picking up these firms? Is it the millennials? Is it private equity? Who are the likely acquisition M&A targets? You know, it's interesting. That has changed uh, dramatically over the last three, four years. There has been more private equity that has jumped into this space than ever before. And typically, private equity would not acquire an IT firm unless it was at least $25 million in revenue and maybe $5 million in EBITDA. It just wouldn't be worth their time. And what's happening now is they'll, they'll make that initial portfolio company purchase And then they'll start looking for other tuck-ins, as they call it, smaller companies to tuck around that initial purchase. 
And so it, what's really happening now is they're coming down market in terms of revenue. So, you know, it's very easy for a private equity firm to pick up, say, a $5 million organization, or I've, I've just completed a transaction where a private equity firm picked up a spinoff of a Dynamics partner and their revenue was considerably less than $5 million. So Interesting. Yeah, it's a different time. Now, there are still strategics or other partners that are making acquisitions. And again, this is all pre-COVID. That's, I think the strategics have changed a little bit. We can talk about that in a minute. But the you know, cost of money has been so cheap for the last three, four years that you need to go to the bank and get a loan to make that down payment that we see a lot more partners buying other partners. And so there's been a lot of that as well, but more private equity than we've ever seen before. What about the global system integrators? Are you seeing many acquisitions from those guys as they look to pick up, you know, hey, I want a delivery team. I need technical expertise and and let me buy it instead of trying to build it. Absolutely. Another deal that I just completed was a huge consulting firm that actually was in the NetSuite space that wanted to pick up a smaller Microsoft partner just to dip their Mm -hmm. toe into the Microsoft space and just learn a little bit more about that channel. And so they made an acquisition of a, a much smaller partner, again, backed by some other money besides their own money. And so, yes, we see that happening as well. Interesting. So you mentioned COVID. We're, you know, still in the midst of this massive impact on the economy. And you recently did a a COVID-19 M&A survey, right? I did. I did. What did you learn in that? Yeah. So I have a lot of partners that are still contemplating, you know, what they're going to do in the next one to three years in terms of an exit strategy. And so I was hearing from a lot of people, it's like, all right, Linda, did I miss the window? Is there no longer an opportunity to sell? You know, how long do I need to hang out? So on and so forth. Should I wait until this is all over, you know, et cetera. And there were a number of surveys that had already been done, but at a much larger level, right? So, you know, you can go out there and look at these surveys, but you really can't compare a $5 million company to a $100 million company. And a lot of these surveys are surveying buyers of much larger companies or buyers of publicly traded companies and or buyers of companies that are not in IT. And again, it's so important to just focus in on this niche and what we see in this area. And IT, as we probably all know, has fared fairly well during this whole COVID environment thing because everybody's going to work remote. And so people are putting more people online. They're buying more hardware to shore up their own infrastructure internally if they have internal infrastructure already in place or they're going to the cloud. So a lot of MSPs and other types of CSPs are definitely seeing an uptick in their business because of this. And, you know, of course, if you were in transportation or airline or retail, that wouldn't be the case. So a lot of these surveys were surveying everybody. And I thought, okay, well, what I really need to do is survey the buyers of IT companies under, say, $50, $100 million and see what their thoughts are. So that's what I did is I reached out to the people that I knew that were making those sorts of acquisitions to see how they felt because I I kind of knew in my gut that those answers would be a little bit different than the general population. And, and that's really what we saw happening there. So what did you find out? What were they telling you? Yeah, so it was interesting because private equity, again, is still sitting on a lot of money. I mean, there's you know estimates anywhere between $1.5 and $3 trillion of money sitting in dry powder on the sidelines where these private equity firms need to invest that cash. And so COVID is not really slowing them down. I mean, they're continuing on with the transactions that they're already in the middle of. They may be adjusting the terms a little bit, but, you know, I was not seeing any any of the private equity firms, you know, really stopping that flow. I did see some of the strategics come back and say, you know what, we want to conserve our cash for a while. 
We know that the cost of debt has gone up a little bit. And, and that is true if you go to the bank now versus four months ago and ask for a loan, you might have to pay a point or a point and a half more just because of the risk of the money and the associated environment that we're in today. So we see less strategics making acquisitions and they were the one that were, they were a bit more conservative, but neither party said that they're putting a complete and total halt on it. Some of them said, you know, we're going to just sit tight for the next three to four months. And a lot of them are ending that time period now. And as anybody that's been through a transaction know, from start to finish, it, it can be, you know, a six, seven, eight month time period. So people are still scouting out looking for people who are looking to make you know, to, to do a transaction. But then a lot of sellers are sitting on the sidelines now and saying, okay, well, some of my revenue has gone down. I don't know what my projections are going to be for the rest of the year. And some of them are saying, hey, you know, we're doing really well here. And it's the people that are doing really well that are still going out into the market because honestly, they now have proven that their recurring revenue and their customer base is stable. And I think those people are actually getting some higher valuations than than they were pre-COVID in, in times. But if you're not in that recurring revenue stream, if you're not, don't have that strong recurring revenue, it's best to sit on the sidelines for a while, I think. Okay. Interesting. You know, it's, it's funny because you look at what businesses are doing really well in this environment and, you know, boat sales, RV sales are through the roof, even home sales. Well, home sales are down, at least in our area, but the values, the prices are going up because there's a scarcity. People are sitting on the sidelines and are kind of afraid to sell right now. So with fewer homes on the market, at least where we are, they're they're fetching a higher price. Yes, it's interesting. So speaking of RVs, personal story here, my husband and I have wanted to buy a Sprinter for the longest time. Like I'm an outdoors girl and I kind of want to take my Sprinter to the ski slope and be able to come in, you know, midday and, you know, have some pasta, maybe a glass of wine, and then go back out, right? And so I've always wanted a Sprinter. I've never seen myself as a big kind of RV girl, but I've always seen myself as a four-wheel drive Sprinter kind of gal, right? So I said to my husband, I was like, you know what? Let's go now. I bet you we can get a super good deal because nobody's buying RVs, right? We get there and like there's virtually none on the lot. I'm like, what happened here? And like, oh, we're selling so many RVs right now. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, like the typical sales guy. <laughs> We're selling a ton, right? And he's like, no, right. our, we've sold more RVs in the last month than we sold all last year. And he wasn't kidding because it took me like three weeks for the bank to finally do my loan because they were so backed up. Wow. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. RVs are just flying off the lot because people don't want to fly and they don't want to be in a hotel room, but yet they want to go out and enjoy the summer. And so how you do it? Do it in an RV. Get an RV or get a boat. Or get a boat. Or yeah. get, a, get a house along a lake. I hear those are in supply as well. <laughs> So if you're a partner with recurring revenue, this could actually be an even better time to sell. Yes, it is. Because you can yeah. prove to the buyer that you have a very stable and strong customer base. Yeah. You're, if you survive this, if you're doing well through this crisis, you're looking pretty resilient. Yes, absolutely. So on your website, you have 100 tips, traps, and tactics for selling or being acquired. That's a lot of tips. I was wondering if you could give us some of your favorites, the top ones that, that partners should be thinking about. Yes, and a lot of these came from some, you know, partner conversations that I had and some of them were some of my own and just a lot of reading and and books that I've read and so I I came up with this list and I think the first thing to recognize and that I see as I represent partners because I do the sell side now so I moved from being a partner writing the book and now I'm in the M&A space representing the the seller, right? So I don't represent the buyer but I really focus on the seller. And, you know, it really doesn't matter the size of the organization. I just find that most partners don't 
operate their financials in, in a gap compliant manner. And I have a company right now that I'm representing. They're over $70 million in revenue and they just moved from a cash basis accounting to a gap basis accounting. And, and it really requires the, you know, their tax accountant and their, their outside accountant to come in every month and do those adjustments because they're still kind of modified cash, I would call it. So, but buyers don't want to see that. They really truly want to see true gap financials. So for example, if you're booking a 12 month subscription contract in a month, you don't want to book all that revenue in the one month. You really need to allocate it over 12 months. Or if you're paying a maintenance renewal for yourself or for your own organization, you don't want to show that expense all in that month. You need to amortize that over the 12 months. And most partners don't make that effort. And I don't care how large you are. I see it all the time. Now, this could be the accountant and the, the former CPA in me that really focuses on focuses in on that. But you really have to have gap-based financials because savvy and sophisticated buyers are going to want to see that. I think the second thing is, and I see this all the time when I go to partners' websites, is I don't see a true value proposition. It's always, hey, you know, we're XYZ company and we're located in Georgia and, you know, we have 25 years of experience in XYZ products. You know, we are your partner that you should come go see, right? I mean, we're, that makes us different from everybody else. My favorite one, Linda, you know, when I, when I was an IBM distributor, what's your value prop? We're an IBM reseller. We're the top IBM reseller. That was, that was usually their value prop. And partners don't understand that and they don't know how to distinguish themselves from their competitors down the street. And there's some tools out there that'll help you define your value proposition, but it needs to be front and center on your website in the hero image and all over your brochures or whatever, your downloadable things and things like that. I mean, I think the other thing too is people don't celebrate the wins or celebrate things like excellent customer service. So one of the pieces of advice that I was given a couple of years before I sold was, hey, if you are, are maintaining your uptime SLA per your agreements, then you should be announcing that to the world, not only like real time on your website, but press releases and things like that. Because, you know, if it's in a press release, everybody's going to believe it, right? And not to say that press releases are shouldn't be believed, but every year at the end of the year, we would do, you know a customer satisfaction survey. And, you know, we were always looking to be, you know, 95% or higher, or we were looking at our churn rate. And every year we would publish a press release indicating, you know, what our customer sat rate was. And that really went a long way in getting our buyer very comfortable with us that our customers weren't going to go anywhere after we sold the business. And so people don't, you know, owners when I ask them, I say, you know, how's your customer service? Oh, it's great. We do surveys. And we so we know our customer service is great. Or sometimes they say, Oh, we just know I'm like, well, how do you know? Well, we we survey a customer base. I'm like, how often you do that? Oh, you know, we do it after every support call. I'm like, okay, well, where are the metrics? Like, what's your churn rate? You know, where are all these metrics? I don't see them anywhere. Oh, yeah, we know we don't really, you know, announce that. I'm like, why not? Right? If you have a great, if you have a great customer retention rate, or if you have a great turnaround time on your tech support tickets, why are you not announcing that to the world? It's it's a way to differentiate yourself from the competition. And it's a way to make buyers more comfortable with you. So it's those subtle things sometimes that people need to do and they're not aware of that as they're preparing themselves for an exit. Going back, Linda, to the value proposition, pe- partners really do struggle with that. Any advice for how they can go about that? You mentioned maybe there's some particular advice or help they can get. Yeah, so there's a couple of sites. And the one that I can think of right now is a group out of Canada 
and it's called Neural Impact. And I think it's N-E-U-R-A-L impact.ca. And I think they still have a section there called tools or resources, something like that. And if you click on that, there is a resource there where you can actually create your value proposition right on their site. So it asks you a number of questions and then it kind of passes back to you what a potential value proposition would look like. I have a couple of other sites that I mentioned in my book as well because it's such a huge deal that I wanted to give people resources where they could actually go to and figure out, you know, how to create a, a good value proposition. And, you know, as an M&A advisor, I kind of had to do the same thing myself. I had to go, okay, what's my value proposition and who, what is the market that I'm serving and who are the people? And you have to think about that, but I think everybody needs to go through that exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. What else? We talked about financials. We talked about customer sat. We talked about value proposition. I think you have to look very hard at your management team and decide if everybody's in the right place on the bus. And if you were to leave the company or if you were to exit for, you know, very quickly after a sale, could your management team take over and maintain the sales after your departure? And I think the best way to do this, and I did this in my organization a number of times, it actually was available to everybody in the entire company is we had this thing called our sabbaticals. And after, I don't know, it was five or seven years with the company, you got a one month sabbatical in addition to your normal vacation. But you couldn't just like, you know, just go away for like, you couldn't just take off a month. You actually had to physically go do something or travel somewhere. You had to better yourself as an, as an individual. That was like part of the whole sabbatical thing. So most people on my team traveled, like one guy did the whole Outback thing through Australia. One of my sabbaticals was I biked the South Island of New Zealand. I think we talked about that, Rob. But what it does, and you have to go for a month, that's the deal. You can't go for three weeks. You have to go from either four to six weeks. And what that forces you to do is, first of all, hand over all your responsibilities to somebody else. And as a CEO, you should be able to delegate that down to the rest of your management team. And why it has to be more than a month is because there are some things as CEOs that we only do once a month. And I'm sure you can think of them. And you don't want to go, okay, I won't delegate that because I'll be back in a month and I'll be able to do that. You truly have to delegate 100% of your job. And what happens is you prepare a month or two in advance, you write up what you do, you hand that down to your management team. And when you come back, you don't take back all those things. You've now delegated that down and you can use that time not only while you were gone to envision where you want to take your company, but you can also then start working on new things when you come back. It's the greatest thing that I think every CEO and every business owner should do for not only themselves, but the rest of their management team. Virtually my entire management team did it while I had my company and it was always a positive thing. Wow. I love that idea. I'm going to use that to, to promote sabbaticals within the company I work for. Yeah, it's a great experience. Everybody that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't want six weeks and then come back and have delegated half the work you're doing? Mm-hmm. That sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what about intellectual property? You know, the what impact that has on you talked about recurring revenue being really important for the valuation. What about IP for the valuation? Sure. Well, first of all, everybody has IP. And people go, Well, I don't I'm not a coder, I haven't developed product. Well, trademarks, copyrights are the, you know, the most common things of IP. Everybody copyrights their website or trademarks, you know, their logo, that sort of thing. But what we all have, and we don't realize is our, what I call organizational IP or our secret sauce, right? So your secret sauce is your quoting system or how you deploy something or your onboarding procedures. All of that is your secret sauce 
to make your team more productive, more efficient. Your secret sauce could be a part of what you build into your ticketing system in terms of how you handle your customer interactions. Your secret IP can also be considered development, right? And I talk about in the book called the IP staircase, where you can start with something as little as Office 365, let's say, because I think many people are familiar with that. And you can build on little tools around the Office 365, whether that's just onboarding, converting people, or connecting two systems. Anyway, the the chapter goes through this staircase where you can increase the IP that you add on based upon demands that your customer has made on you and come up with a product on your own. And almost everybody has something like that. But guess what? It's not a product until you give it a name. And I'm like, you know, because I sit down with partners, I'm like, okay, let's talk about your IP. What is it that you do constantly for your customers that you have a routine? You've done over and over again. Do you package that in a single price? And most partners can say, yeah, you know, we have our gold, silver, bronze for onboarding. And yes, gold, silver, bronze is a a great name, but, and it's a, a good start, but I bet you have other IP beyond that, just onboarding that you can package up, give it a name slap one number on it, and that's the cost of it. But you've done it so many times that your gross profit margin on that particular SKU is much higher than if you were billing by the hour. And so that's where your IP really starts. Now, you can start small there and over the years have actually developed a product that you can put on the marketplace that maybe connects with a an office product or, you know, a CRM or ERP product. And and many people do that as well. And it becomes a progressive thing, but everybody has IP and it's really important to sit down and document what you have. Yeah. I know there are examples of, of companies that have built IP around platforms like Salesforce and then went on to, to have huge uh, acquisitions of their companies, or even, I think there was one or two that even went public. That's something that we're promoting a lot of that, Linda, at OutSystems, where companies can leverage our app dev platform to build their own products, you know, build their IP into an actual package product that they sell as a service, you know, in a SaaS offering. Exactly. It sounds to me like channel managers could leverage your book and particularly that section, the, the, the IP, IP staircase mm-hmm. yes. in advising their partners on how to add to their value. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Any other top tips that, sh- that we should let our, our listeners know about? Yeah. So, you know, people always ask me, should I try to sell the company on my own or should I use an M&A advisor or investment banker or business broker? And I think the answer there is it depends. You know, I did three sales, three company transactions, two of which I did on my own. And I would not have used a broker for the first two, but the third one I definitely did. And let me walk through that. So the first one I sold to my partner. So obviously I didn't want to bring a third party into that, but I did actually go out there and look at comparables or comparables for other staffing firms so that I could come up with a number that seemed realistic. And so I did, you know, I didn't use somebody else, but I, I looked outside of my own organization to come back with a, a decent number. The second go around, which is my sale of my partner organization, which did the implementations of ERP and CRM systems, actually was acquired by a competitor, but they were in a a different part of the state and they wanted to have a presence in Southern California. And culturally, it was a great, great fit. And they approached me and it kind of came out of the blue. And I was thinking about selling, but I wasn't, didn't feel like I was really there yet. But it was such a great cultural fit that I sort of went with it. And again, in that in that particular transaction, I really didn't know what my company's worth, what was worth. And so I went out and talked to some people and got some values. But I think in that instance, 
had I used a broker, I might have been able to increase the price. So the third time I did use a broker and in part because I wanted to look outside of the channel. Like I knew a lot of the people in the channel who might be interested in me, but I also wanted to remain anonymous in this whole process. And I wanted somebody else to run it to maintain that level of confidentiality. And so I did use a broker. And it's so important to find a broker that really understands this space and knows who's buying companies in this space. And there are more and more people coming into the space every day when I mean the space, the IT service provider space. But there are certain players that progressively buy companies. And so you got to find somebody that really understands your value proposition, understands your IP, knows how to articulate it, can see, especially if it's another strategic partner that's looking to acquire you, how the two companies could be a one plus one equals three, four or five versus just a one plus one equals two, and really be able to help guide the seller along. So, you know, I've done both. There are certain situations where you can do it on your own, but there are other situations where I really highly advise getting a coach or an M&A advisor. And your business that you're doing now, you're not just an author of this book, you are actually out there coaching partner business owners on on getting acquired. Are you, do you also act as a broker? I do. Yes. Okay. So you're doing, co- you do both. I've, yeah. I'm not FINRA registered, so I don't handle publicly traded companies, but you know, I've been through a number of courses and I pull on my own background from being a CPA in a former life. I still am a CPA tax accountant and just being a CEO and having been through this multiple times on my own, I feel like I represent sellers quite well. And then I've just learned from the experiences that I had. Like even the broker that I picked was really good in the sense that he brought a good number of buyers to the table, but he really wasn't very number savvy. Like I really had to negotiate the deal with the seller. That wasn't his sweet spot. And the other thing that he didn't really do a good job is get me ready in the, for the due diligence process. Because what ended up happening was in the end, I was doing a lot of due diligence and negotiating the contract at the same time, which was incredibly stressful. Like I can't even begin to tell you, whereas most brokers, I really encourage and coach their clients to get the due diligence data room ready ahead of time. So that was one of the things that I learned that takes the pressure off the seller is we we spend two, three months getting the data room ready for the seller in advance of a potential offer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, you have a very interesting background, the channel journey that, that got you here. So you started out as a CPA at Arthur Anderson. Is that right? Yes. Yep. How did you go from that, you're, you're a tax accountant, into owning these, these IT businesses? So back then, there were rules in the firm that you couldn't date, let alone get married. And I happened to meet a, a fabulous guy that I really wanted to marry. And he was more senior than me. So I did the good wifely thing <laughs> <laughs> and left the firm because he was making more money than I was. And he was 10 years more senior than I was. And I didn't want to ruin his chances of becoming partners. So mm-hmm. I let the firm, went out on my own for a little while, and then ended up becoming the CFO of a small residential developer. But what happened, this was like late 80s, the real estate market just blew up. And we were in the middle of a recession in Southern California. I lost my job. And I was also six months pregnant. So I was going out on interviews and I was already showing and I'm like, well, you know, I'm due in three months. And oh, by the way, I'd like to take four months (laughs) off. And guess what? I just wasn't a really good hire, you know? No, that would be, that'd be a tough sell. That was a tough sell. 
So I just started doing some consulting work on my own. And I then took four months off, had our son and then decided, well, I'm going to go look for a job. But then the people that I had done some consulting work prior to having the baby called me back and said, Hey, we got more stuff for you to do. Can you come back? And just one thing led to another before I knew it, I had a client that was looking to implement an accounting firm, um, sort of an accounting system. And that's when I really made the leap from taxes to accounting, implementing accounting systems. And it was a DOS system at the, at the time. Then I moved quickly into Windows packages, but it was just not a planned event. Like, like none of my companies, Rob, like people go, Oh, you must have planned everything. No, actually I didn't. I should start a four company. <laughs> but none of them were a planned event. It was always like, Oh, this, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe I should do that. And being the accountant, I'm always doing forecasts and running projections and all that. If the numbers kind of turn out at the end, I usually flip the switch and say, okay, let's do it. So that's kind of how all of my three companies started. So your your channel career is summed up by when one door closes, another one opens. Absolutely. And you don't even have to wait for the last door to close. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, you don't. That actually led me into the M&A career because honestly, when I sold my company in 2017, I didn't plan on an M&A career. As a matter of fact, I was kind of freaked out because I knew that I didn't want to retire and I had no idea what I was going to do. And I knew all the things I couldn't do legally anymore per my non-compete. And so I had a period of time there before I went on the trail about what I was going to do. And so, you know, writing the book kind of really got me more interested in the whole M&A space because basically that's what I, I wrote was an M&A book for channel partners. And But from the CEO perspective versus a lawyer or a broker perspective, which is a very much a different perspective. And then yeah, you, and, yeah. and you having been through the experience. Exactly. Puts, puts a different spin on everything. Yeah. So, so practical. So I'm curious too, Linda, where did you get this adventurous spirit, not only to launch your own companies, but hiking 500 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail, biking New Zealand? You told me some sailing adventure that you went on. Where does that come from? You know, it's just, I feel like there's no limits, no bounds to anything. And I remember being with my husband in Tahiti and we, I, you know, I always like to take a book along if I'm going to go, this is back when, when I didn't have time to read because I was running companies, right? And so... I took a book and I was sitting out on one of those great huts over the water thing in Tahiti. And I read this book called The Cold Beer and Crocodiles. And it was about this guy who biked the entire, around the entire perimeter of Australia. And it took him nine months. And I'm like, wow, that is an epic journey. And I'm like, I'd love to do that, but I don't have nine months to do that. And, and that's what kind of led to biking around the South Island of New Zealand. I'd been to New Zealand earlier and I knew that was a country that I could be fine on my own and not get run off the road by crazy drivers like you would in California. So that's what led to that. And then as I was selling my company, the book and the movie Wild came out with Reese Witherspoon, which is a great, oh, that's great. story. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I want to go do that. And I was telling my husband about that. And he goes, you've never backpacked a day in your life. And I'm like, good point. <laughs> and so I did a three-day journey around Mount Hood and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> but it did teach me on that my pack was too heavy and that my stove was too heavy. And so I switched out pretty much all of my gear, except for maybe my trekking poles and my, my backpack and, and then decided, you know what, I just kind of like this concept of being free and, and deciding where you're going to sleep that night. And so here I am, I'm going to go hike for 500 miles. And that's all that I could do without a permit. Otherwise, I probably would have gone a much longer 
period of time, but legally you can't go more than 500 miles without a permit along the PCT anyway. And how long did that take you? It took about six to seven weeks. You know, there were days where, oh my gosh, Rob, my first day, three minutes into the wilderness, I got annihilated by mosquitoes and, and my, my spray was at the bottom of my pack. So I'm while I'm digging <laughs> through my entire pack, trying to find my mosquito spray, which by the way, was all organic. <laughs> I didn't believe in DEET until like mile 25. I'm like, get me the DEET now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the first 10 minutes. And then I think two or three hours into the hike, it started thundering and lightning and then pea-sized hail started coming down on me. And so I pulled out my waterproof jacket, which turns out wasn't so waterproof. And then that night I had to pitch a tent under some trees and find a safe place to, to hang out because it was thundering and lightning and just pissing down rain. And that was my first nine hours on the PCT. <laughs> oh man. Did you ever else? think about quitting? Oh my gosh. Like, like in probably hour two, you know, like <laughs> what was I thinking here? But I'm not a quitter. So, you know, I just continued on. It was a great adventure. You don't sound like a quitter. You know, that movie with Reese Witherspoon, there's a favorite, my favorite scene is when she's got the pack on. It's so heavy and it just, she just falls over backwards. She's got so much junk loaded into it. It's so true. I had some days where I was packing 40 pounds because I had, and I'm sure she had more than 40 pounds in that scene, but there were some days where I knew I'd have to be out on the trail seven to 10 days. And I always had an extra day worth of food just in case something happened. And if I had more than a 13 mile stretch of no water, you know, during the summer months, you kind of need a liter of water for every four miles. That was my rule of thumb. So I had another, you know, four liters of water on me and every liter is 2.2 pounds. You know that when you start backpacking. And um, yeah, so, you know, I was at 40 plus pounds with a full, you know, and it's brutal. It's lighter <laughs> every day. That's the good news. <laughs> We live very close to the start of the Appalachian Trail, and mm -hmm. it's funny. We, we go on day hikes every spring, and you'll see these guys out there that are just starting out, and their their packs are so heavy, and they're you know they're ditching stuff as they go, and yeah, it's just it's just hard to imagine being on the trail. You know, they're out there for months and months and months to to get yeah. all the way to Maine. I ditched tons of stuff the first two three days, sent things home. I guess I don't need this extra pot. I guess I don't need this <laughs> iPad. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah, you learn. Very cool. Do you have another another adventure in mind of what you want to do next? I definitely want to do some more backpacking. I think my biking days are over for a little while just because I've got some hip issues there. But, you know, I told you about my new little sprinter that I got. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hitting up some very remote lakes and maybe learning how to fish and just taking it uh -huh. a little bit easier. So, yeah, got some got some some plans for sure. Very awesome. Well, Linda, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Want to read your book and we'll um, put out on the my website. We'll uh, provide some links to those giveaways we talked about. And where can folks find you? Well, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So look for me at Linda Rose at LinkedIn. And then you can always find me on my website, which is rosebizinc.com, R-O-S-E-B-I-Z-I-N-C.com. I tend to write blog posts every month. And so it's all channel related. It's all about metrics, all about things you need to do to prepare yourself. And it's worthwhile reading, I think, if you're somebody that is interested in looking to sell one day, whenever that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, last question. Was there anything that I didn't ask you that I you wished I would have? Well, we'll get on another call one day and talk about sailing through the Tahitian Islands. We didn't talk about that. We'll do that. We time. didn't talk about sailing. In fact, 
We should do that. I, I was thinking of doing a sailing podcast because I just got back from my sailing trip from St. Thomas to Rhode Island. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was a great adventure. Yeah, we got to talk sailing. Definitely. Talk sailing next time. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you again, Linda. Fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It's been a pleasure. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. That was awesome. How fun chatting with Linda. I really love her adventurous soul. It takes guts and courage to launch a company or go out and hike 500 miles on your own. And, and Linda certainly has that. I really love her tips, too, for getting acquired, starting with your building your own value proposition. That's so important as a partner. And as channel managers, working with partners, helping them really define that value proposition. In fact, I was just speaking with a partner the other day on that topic. Well, you can find a recap of all of Linda's tips in the show notes on my website at www.channeljourneys.com backslash CJ53. And you'll also find there links to a couple of things that she left for us as special offers, a pre-score assessment. We have a link to that and also a link to a sample first chapter of her book, Get Acquired for Millions. So some great stuff there. If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. And also, I'm very happy to see all the businesses and restaurants and parks that are reopening. We're starting to come out of our shells. And as we start going back out into the world from our, our COVID-19 hideouts, please, let's remember to show respect. Let's show love for each other, not hate. It takes a lot more strength to create and build others up than to destroy and tear people down. That's my thought for the day. I'll be back soon with another great guest. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.